0: your championship. Listen to this crowd. Braves and baseball talk straight from the diamond. Here's Grant McCauley. Hello again, and welcome to another episode of From the Diamond. As always, I'm Grant McCauley, and it's time for a chat about the Braves and Major League Baseball, and we've got a lot to get into on this episode of the show. Bill Rowland and I will go through the latest on where MLB stands as it negotiates what the 2020 season could look like, and also my friend Carlos Colazo of Baseball America is going to join the show to talk about the changes to the 2020 draft. It's just five rounds, so what does that mean, both for the players in this draft, for the players that don't get drafted, and for the clubs, how exactly is their draft strategy going to change with a shorter draft? We'll ask Carlos about all of that and get his take on what the Braves could be looking to do in this year's draft as well. As always, I want to let you know you can find From the Diamond on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Leave those ratings and reviews, and if you like the podcast, be sure to share it with a friend. You can follow along on social media, on Twitter, at FromTheDiamond underscore. I am at Grant McCauley, G-R-A-N-T-M-C-A-U-L-E-Y. And you can find Bill Rowland at Bill Rowland, B-I-L-L-R-O-H-L-A-N-D. On Instagram, at FromTheDiamond. I am at Grant McCauley. And every episode of the show and so much more is available for you at FromTheDiamond.com. All right, we got a lot to get to on this show, so let's lead things off. with A little bit of a draft discussion because there are some big changes coming down the pipe for what the 2020 June draft is going to look like. And to help me break it all down, I want to welcome Carlos Collazo into the show. Make sure you're following his work over at Baseball America. He's been doing great stuff over there, and they just wrapped up their draft preview. Carlos, appreciate you making the time. It's been a while since we've had a chance to talk about the Braves, the draft, or anything in between. I hope you've been doing well, and thanks for making some time to chat with me today.
1: Yeah, I appreciate it. Grant, thanks for having me on. It's always fun to talk baseball, maybe even more so when it's not really going on.
0: Absolutely. I know it certainly is. I know it's been a busy time over there at Baseball America where you guys have been cranking out a draft preview for the 2020 draft, and that's kind of been in the news quite a bit lately as we try to figure out what exactly the 2020 season is going to look like the draft is also going to be feeling some of the effects of that, and this is going to be quite the departure from the norm. We're not getting the 40 rounds worth of draft. It's going to be five rounds, and we're going to dig into all this, but what was your immediate takeaway from this drastic change to the amateur draft?
1: Yeah, it's going to be the shortest draft we've ever had. I mean, it's going to be a historic draft that people kind of look back on years and years and years and kind of talk about. It's going to have a lot of ramifications uh, at the amateur game and the pro game, Um, so it's, it's pretty monumental. I think... My first reaction was, um, I know there were some rumors that no draft was going to take place, so I guess having one in general uh, is good news, especially for me as someone who specifically covers the draft for Baseball America. Um, But, yeah, five rounds is is a tough pill to swallow. I know a lot of scouting directors, basically all the scouting directors, all the scouts in the industry, front offices, they were all pushing for 10 rounds. Uh, Obviously, owners were pushing for five, and that's what we ended up with. Uh, so it's a little bit disappointing, particularly for this year's class. Uh, it's a very deep 2020 draft class when we're just talking about the talent involved. Um, and this is going to create a lot of challenges for, for those players who would have been fits in the 6-10 to 10 round range. A lot of players aren't going to get the money that they were kind of expecting or hoping for. Uh, and it's also going to create a crunch on the college game. There are going to be a lot of players who are returning who maybe had plans to start their pro careers. A lot of high school players are going to get squeezed out. Uh, people are going to be battling for at-bats and playing time and scholarship money when they maybe didn't think that was going to happen before then. Uh, maybe some, some players will move to the JUCO route to kind of account for that. But there's a lot of moving parts. Uh, and I think the, the biggest picture is the amateur the amateur players are losing a lot here. And I think uh, hopefully it, it won't have too many ramifications on, on the program long term. Hopefully no players who are talented maybe have other avenues, whether that's other sports or a different job. Uh, prospects don't get squeezed out in totality for the future. So hopefully they can kind of find a way to get back into the game. But, yeah, it's a a different draft year.
0: Yeah, and everybody's been looking at this, trying to parse exactly what this means. And for the average sports fan that might look at, say, the NFL or the NBA and see, oh, their draft's only, what, five, six, seven rounds. What's the big deal with baseball only doing a five or six or seven-round draft? Well, the big deal with that is, as I think it was Jason Stark pointed out, a 1,000 guys are not going to be drafted this year. doesn't mean they were all going to sign. doesn't mean they were all reaching their final destinations or launching their pro career, but I feel like it took away a lot of opportunity and some of the certainty that can come, as much as you can, with a draft. And in the spending realm, I've seen people look at it from the dollars and cents perspective from the owners of why wouldn't you want to be investing this money which is really pennies on Mm -hmm. the dollar when you think about you draft these guys. They're not free agents. You don't have to negotiate deals Mm -hmm. with them in the literal sense. And clubs aren't really saving Mm -hmm. that much when it comes to uh, what they're going to be using the pool money for, from my understanding. So financially speaking, Carlos, how did you read that and why make this change and why was this so important to the owners, do you think?
1: Yeah, I think it's just a financial decision at the end of the day. And while I think the people who have looked into it are right, I mean, it's about 75% of the total draft bonus money is spent in the top five rounds. So if you really look at it, like, are you saving a ton? Well, from the owner's perspective, they'd probably tell you yes. From everyone else's perspective, they'd probably tell you that it's it's a small amount, especially mm-hmm. when you're talking about a system like the draft, which is far and away the most valuable and the cheapest way to acquire talent. I mean, this is a system where teams uh, get guys significantly cheaper than they would if we were yeah. dealing in some sort of free market system, obviously, uh, and that's the, uh, that's the challenge that scouting directors and front offices are looking at as well. They're saying, hey, there are a lot of really talented guys that we want to get into the system, um, but at the same time, I mean, this is a financial situation for, for baseball teams and for people as a whole outside of the game, so I can, I can see from the owner's perspective why if you're not getting any revenue, you would want to kind and of, kind of cut your costs, and maybe by cutting some of the costs in the draft, some employees for teams are able to keep jobs longer. That's maybe the silver lining of this. But, but like you said, I mean, it's a, it's a tough pill to swallow. It's it's not really fortunate for anyone. Um, and it's just, it just kind of sucks, honestly, if you're a player who's been kind of preparing for this for years and years, and you're a scout who's been kind of bearing down on all these guys for multiple years as well, and you're ready to take them. And like I said, this is a very strong draft year. So uh, it's disappointing, but at the end of the day, it's a financial decision that, that was made, and we're going to have to live with it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And the weird thing right now, I think for a lot of people, it might be uncomfortable. It might be something that's a little bit, I guess the word might be triggering to sit around talking about financials Mm -hmm. for pro athletes and that kind of thing, while there's a high unemployment rate and a number of other things going on in the country, not to get off into the weeds too much. But when I do look at this draft and I do think about where this money goes from the club perspective, I guess from the ownership perspective, and then there's that old adage, and I forget exactly what round it is, but it's basically your top picks don't necessarily give you a win in a particular draft class it's about both the quality and the quantity of it but it seems like that's kind of out the window in some ways this year Mm -hmm. just from my initial reading of it
1: yeah I've talked to some scouting directors who are just kind of wondering how are these draft classes going to be evaluated now some some people said if you get five major leaguers in a draft at at any capacity that's a success well if you're getting five major leaguers in a five-round draft you basically win 100 percent not counting the the undrafted players Uh, that's signed with you after the fact. But, yeah, it's going to be tough to kind of evaluate success and failures here. It'll be interesting to see what strategies teams implement. Do you take a a much safer route and go with players who have a long track record uh, prior to the 2020 season? I could see a lot of teams pivoting to that kind of college demographic. Uh, And at the same time, if if you say you only have five chances to get a player, I could see a team going for a strategy where you just try and get as much impact as possible because you just don't have – those 20-25 other players in your class to to add any kind of weight to it. So it'll be very interesting to see how teams kind of operate this year.
0: Yeah, this $20,000 bonus limit for undrafted players. So if you don't go in the first five rounds, for those of you listening that haven't dug into this a lot, there's a cap to how much you can spend on an undrafted player, which is definitely Mm -hmm. unprecedented among some of the other things in this particular draft. And I think that's going to sting for some of these young players. So Carlos, What do you think it does? You touched on this a little bit earlier, but to these college and even high school players who would have been in line for a better payday and the opportunity to start their pro career, now that they're not in the top five rounds, that is no longer a clear road for them, so to speak. It seems like there's going to be some difficult decisions to be made by a lot of these kids, and the trickle-down effect could be for a lot of colleges and schools trying to figure out what exactly to do with all these players.
1: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, a lot of these guys are just going to get squeezed out. That's kind of the bottom line here. I talked with a lot of college coaches before this decision was made, and, and like scouting directors and scouts in the industry, they were really hoping for a 10-round draft uh, at the minimum just because that will help with a lot of that roster crunch you're going to see now. I mean, if you look at the 6-10 to 10 round range, those guys previously were getting 100000 to $300,000, depending on the player and the team they went to. and. Uh, all sorts of other factors, but they're not going to come close to that if you're not selected in the top five rounds. And for a lot of guys, that just means uh pro ball is not feasible for you. If you, if the, if the money is important and you mm-hmm. maybe need to get that money for your family, or maybe you just can't survive on $20,000 to play baseball with all the stuff you'd have to do in the off season. I mean, it, it makes a lot more sense to just go back to school and try and come out uh, in a year where things are a little more solid financially. I mean, we expect this to be the, the heaviest college draft that we've ever had uh, teams have kind of been continually pushing more in that direction, but we see a lot of the high school players, maybe outside of the elite high school players who were able to be seen a lot last summer by a uh, scouting directors and general managers, those guys might be okay. But that second and third tier of high school and, and college guys are, are probably going to be squeezed out. They're going to have to figure out where they're going to go to school at. Uh, I think depending on, the college situation. I mean, a lot of these college coaches have to routinely uh, over-recruit because they don't know how many guys they're going to lose any given year. They're going to be guys in their high school class uh, that they're unsure of if they're going to sign or if they're going to get to campus. So there's just going to be a lot of roster crunch that college coaches are trying to figure out right now. I'm sure they're trying to figure out which one of their which players on their team now are going to be drafted, which players in their recruiting class are going to be drafted. So it's a headache for them for sure. Um, but yeah, we have 1,200 people around around that normally that get drafted this year it's going to be 160 so you do the math there and it's it's a lot of headache for college coaches and and obviously the
0: players themselves yeah the numbers don't lie and they don't spell good things for some of these kids and this twenty thousand dollar bonus to kind of circle back to it i know you went in depth there on what it could mean in terms of some of the roster crunching and the decision that to be made and obviously different guys have different financial situations but do you see that to be more of a detriment or do you think that for the most part for a lot of guys it might not be as big an effect but it does keep away maybe saving some of that draft pool money and spending it to sign that pick after the fifth round that might just require a little bit Mm -hmm. of extra money to get him to, say, forego his college commitment and things like that. I mean, I guess there's a lot of scenarios out there, so it's it's kind of hard to pin it all to the wall. But do you think the $20,000 thing is – a bigger detriment or perhaps the worst thing about this draft plan that the owners have pushed forward?
1: Yeah, I think it's unfortunate. I mean there were in in, in day three of the previous drafts there were a lot of teams who got really aggressive and previously there was a hundred and twenty five thousand dollar mark that you could spend without tapping into your pool. So if you were if you were a team that wanted to get aggressive on day three you could spend a lot of money without yeah. hitting your pool, and you could also go over it to about 5% is what most teams do without getting into various penalties. Mm-hmm. Um, so the teams who who are who have owners who are willing to spend and want to acquire talent and put more talent in their system, they're just not able to do that. Now, I feel like there are going to be a lot of seniors uh, who are going to sign for that 20 k limit. If you look at some of the signing bonuses that those players have gotten previous years, I mean, there are a lot of kids who will sign for a grand uh, or less than $20,000, and I think there will still be a market for that. Whether that's because they just want to start their pro career, whether that's because they see they might be getting pushed out, uh, and they might not have a roster spot in college, um, or because their their money was always going to be in that twenty thousand range. I mean, just look at some of the bonuses from some of these seniors, uh, and even some juniors in some cases who are who aren't signing for a ton of money. They just want to get out there and start their career. So there's going to be some flexibility for players like that. But anytime you're capping what you can spend on players, it's unfortunate. Uh, I know that's basically the entire system we we work within in the draft, but it is disappointing because I know there are going to be some teams out there who who want to get talent, and preventing that uh, is unfortunate.
0: Yeah, and let me ask you this. Just because you work in such a very specific part of the industry and covering the draft and all the different aspects of it, minor league baseball is possibly changing. I think we know it's going to change Mm -hmm. in some way. Are these teams going to be contracted? Is the whole system going to be completely realigned? Either way, are there going to be as many jobs in minor league baseball? If you're reading the tea leaves right now, it seems like there could be less jobs. That The minor league system could be due an overhaul, and that certainly has been in the backdrop of what's been going on with major league baseball and a number of different discussions that the, the league is trying to figure out, and of course, MILB is trying to figure out as well. Do you mm-hmm. think that's going to have an effect, or that this could be a harbinger of things to come when it comes to just being less minor league jobs in general. So, why not open the idea of changes to the draft in the future as well? Or is that just really too hard to tell right now?
1: I mean, you think that's spot on. I mean, right when it was announced that this draft was going to be as, as short as five rounds, and next year, uh, I think the minimum they can bring it to is 20 rounds, and most people expect it is going to be close to that 20 round number. Uh, I got a lot of feedback from people within the industry, scouts and agents who are like, okay minor league contraction is happening because of this. I mean, if you look at everything that Major League Baseball has been trying to do before all this coronavirus stuff started, they wanted to contract the minor league system. They wanted to get rid of some some of those lower-level teams um, and have uh, just a different system. And if you look at just line everything up together, I mean, it's more college-heavy. With, with more college players going in, you need fewer of those lower-level complex and rookie league teams um, to kind of suit those development needs. And if you're drafting fewer players, uh, you're going to have a lot less. Uh, you're going to have a lot less players to fill out teams. So I think all of it aligns with what MLB has been trying to do. Um, most of the people that I talk to think that's what's going to happen in the future. And honestly, MLB was doing this before all this happened, and it just kind of lined up and gave them the opportunity to maybe expedite that process. Now we don't know for sure, so I'm kind of speaking um, just with an idea of what could happen in the future. Sure. But I mean, JJ Cooper who, at Baseball America has done a lot of reporting on this, and I would expect that sooner rather than later we're going to see uh, some sort of contraction at the minor league level Um, and a lot of teams aren't going to be there where where previously you had them.
0: For sure and there's a lot of different levels and when you look at what Major League Baseball does to ready its young talent before they reach the highest level of the sport even with there being some leagues that the NBA or the NFL has where they can send players it's not the same thing Mm -hmm. as going and having a minor league career in order to reach your Major League Baseball goal and you know, reach the major leagues and stay there, obviously. So uh, clearly a lot Mm -hmm. more players being drafted is a big difference in what's going on between the the sports. But this is just a fascinating time for baseball right now, as I think it kind of wrestles with some of the ways it's always been and maybe some of the evolution of the game that's always going to be an ever-present part of both life and the sport. So we'll see how this whole thing plays out, but it doesn't seem like those two things are not at least mildly related in terms of this five round draft this year. And of course, as you mentioned a 20 round draft next year, we'll see how that whole thing plays out. But um, let me ask you a little bit about this class. You said it's a deep class as you went Mm -hmm. through and had the process of you guys over at baseball America, putting together the great content that you do for this draft preview. Was it a little bit more difficult this year to try to get that thing set up? And, uh, kind of project where guys can go and maybe what teams are trying to do this year.
1: Yeah, definitely. There are a couple of challenges this year. It it is a deep class, but throughout this spring, obviously we do a baseball America 500 every year where we publish the top 500 prospects in the class. We have that list up now. I will say that it is a lot more difficult to get thorough information on a lot of those guys in the 300 to 500 range, just because scouts didn't get to work down their list and get to a lot of those players this year, uh, just because there wasn't enough time for the evaluations to take place. So that's been one challenge uh, teams obviously aren't going to have that issue with just five rounds uh, but we like to cover the draft in indefinitely and the talent is there um, and then the second one is just with mock drafts and kind of trying to figure out what teams are going to be doing as we get closer to this June 10th date um, the big thing is there are no games to kind of scout the scouts uh, you can't see which evaluators and which general managers and which scouting directors are bearing down on which targets so I think there's a lot of there's a lot more uncertainty within within scouting departments themselves and, and from, from my perspective on kind of where teams are leaning. I think typically around this time of year is where we start to get some information on which teams and which players are lining up in the first round. It's a lot more murky this year than it typically is. So that'll be a challenge that hopefully uh will become a little bit easier to figure out as we get closer. But definitely as far as rumors uh and, and gossip you hear. Uh, from the stands at games we're getting a lot less of that with none of those taking place so we'll see how we can do uh, as we get closer
0: i imagine that's been a lot more difficult if you will to try to get all of the information that you usually would have gotten because it's just not as available as abundantly available as it has Mm -hmm. been in some years past detroit tigers have the number one pick in the draft orioles marlins royals and blue jays to follow that's the top five picks some I know it's just kind of a general question, but just what I'd like to ask, as you look at the top few picks in the draft, who's caught your eye, and who do you think could go 1-1 to Detroit?
1: Yeah, we think it's going to be very college-heavy at the top. Our top five prospects are all college players. Um, right now, we actually just released a mock draft yesterday, uh, the fourth version of our mock draft for the 2020 class. We have Spencer Torkelson going uh, in the 1-1 spot to the Tigers. That's the Arizona State first baseman who has Some of the better power production that scouts have seen in in many years, I think you can make the argument that he's the best college power hitter, uh, going back to maybe Chris Bryant, just in terms of the production that he's been able to get to that power in games. Uh, He's a very, very impressive hitter. Um, We have top-of-the-scale power on him and plus hitting ability. Uh, He'll be the first, if he does go 1-1, he'll be the first ever college first baseman to go 1-1. Now, some scouts will look at Pat Burrell and say, okay, he was a third baseman, but we kind of expected him to move to first, but... In terms of the actual position called when drafted, it would be kind of cool to see that position go first just because we haven't seen it before. Um, But Austin Martin, the Vanderbilt outfielder, is maybe the best pure hitter in the class, and I think he's the other guy that you would point to uh, as a favorite at this point to be in that 1-1 consideration.
0: It should be pretty interesting to see where those two guys go. A little bit further down in that first round, you find the Atlanta Braves hanging around at 25. I know it's impossible to predict, and a lot of it, it comes to, you know, what teams, you know, how they might fall in love with the players. they follow them for a number of years. And we've seen the Brave strategy begin to shift from what it was under the John Hart, John Coppolella strategy, where high school arms seem to be pretty valuable to them. They went very college heavy last year. Uh, what realm do you think the Braves are looking into the most this year? And are we expecting a, perhaps another pitcher after a year in which they took a college catcher with their top pick last year?
1: Yeah, our last mock, we have Nick Lofton. He's a Baylor shortstop to the pick for the Braves, and it'll be interesting to see if they take two Baylor kids in the first round. They also took Braden Shoemake with their second first-round pick last year, and I think um, Lofton is is more similar to Shoemake kind of in that range. He's kind of that steady, Eddie college player who has a long track record of performance. Um, not the tooliest guy ever, but he saw it across the board, and he showed developing power this This year. So I think that's a bat that just generally in the back of the first round range has been talked about a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, I will will be just quite honest with saying that I don't have a ton of hard information on who the Braves specifically are targeting. I think most teams in that range don't really know, and they're kind of just trying to make sure all their bases are covered in that range. I will say that we expect a lot of really impressive college arms to be available there. There's plenty of depth in that specific demographic. So if they're looking for another pitcher – Uh, who can kind of move and help this improving Major League Braves team quickly. I think there are a lot of guys who could be interesting in that range. Carmen Majinski is a South Carolina pitcher who entered the year as a potential top 10 candidate. I think he might be available in that range. Uh, Another guy who has a long track record in the SEC, Tanner Burns. The Auburn right-hander is another guy who I think is a a high likelihood starter at the Major League level in some capacity. Uh, Those are just some names that I feel like in, in the Braves range would be interesting um, in addition to some of the uh, the other paths that might be available there.
0: Well, it'll be interesting to see what the Braves decide to do with their, not just their top pick, but the picks that they have available in the five-round draft. Then, of course, I think we'll find exactly what kind of value is to be found with undrafted players this year. It's going to be unlike anything we've ever seen. And Carlos, certainly appreciate you giving us your knowledge on what it might look like and some of the things that went into this. And of course, all the hard work you guys have been doing over at Baseball America. Let us know uh, a little bit about this draft preview, where we can find all the info and uh, when to look forward to it hitting newsstands.
1: Yeah, no doubt. We just sent the uh, the actual magazine, the draft preview issue, which is basically like 70 to 80 pages of just pure draft content. We have the top 200 reports in there. Uh, A lot of stories on just kind of how this year's draft is different than previous, so if you really want to get into the weeds and kind of what it's going to look like, what teams are doing, uh, a few features on some of the top prospects that I mentioned, uh, our mock drafts in there, so you can pick that up, I think that's going to hit newsstands uh, within a week or two, go to BaseballAmerica.com, you can get all that content online as well, and you can follow me on Twitter at Carlos A. Collazo if you want to just keep following the draft at a a day-to-day level as we get closer.
0: Uh, if you're not doing that already, I definitely recommend you follow Carlos for the great draft insight that he brings. And, of course, it kind of dating back to, I guess, what it's been three or four years now that you've been kind of on that beat. And since we've been wandering around a ballpark at the same time, but happy to see your success. And I yeah. really enjoy following your work. So thanks so much for taking the time.
1: Yeah, I appreciate it. Grand. Those fun times back in the day uh, at Turner Field, back when that was still going around. It's kind of crazy to think that it's so long ago. It doesn't doesn't feel like that long ago, but man.
0: Well, when we get a chance, we'll have you out to the new house. It's pretty nice as well. So I look forward to that. And again, appreciate your time and you and yours. Stay safe.
1: Thank you, Grant. I appreciate it. It's fun chatting with you. Stay safe as well.
0: All right. Well, let's discuss exactly what's going on with Major League Baseball as they work towards that agreement and trying to get a 2020 season started. There are a lot of different aspects of this and a lot of different things that have been tossed around in the last couple of weeks since we talked about it. I want to welcome Bill Rowland into the show. Bill, glad to have you again. Hope everything's been going well your way, and it seems like we've got a lot of different topics to discuss as Major League Baseball tries to get something agreed to between the ownership contingent and the player contingent, and we might have baseball back in our life sooner than later.
2: Yeah, good to talk to you again, Grant. And uh, Like you said, it's been a couple of weeks, and a lot of progress, I think, has been made, although there's still a lot more to go, but we're closer to having baseball than we were a couple weeks ago.
0: Yeah, and I do feel like there is progress, but I also feel like there's some very obvious contention going on between the two sides. It's not something that's going to be just smooth sailing all the way through, and I think it it provokes a lot of different thoughts from both sides, of course, from the general public as they try to make this thing happen in a very public arena. But The majority of businesses across America probably aren't having to deal with it that way, but the dynamic of professional sports, of course, that allows for a lot more discussion, we'll call it that, for exactly what league should and should not be doing and what should and should not be important. But, Bill, these are unprecedented times, so I would imagine that for the guys and gals that are trying to make this season happen from the logistics perspective right now in these talks, this is going to be a very nuanced and very difficult job.
2: Well, yeah, if you think about it, I mean, whoever comes back first, and I, I know Dana White the UFC came back, it's a little bit different because you're talking about just a couple of guys fighting with the referee in the ring. You're not talking about a football team on the field or a baseball team or, or whatever it may be. So the first sport that comes back is going to be the one that gets the biggest microscope put on them to see how they handle it. And it's much different than, say, a restaurant opening up in your local town because that's only going to be the local news probably that focuses in on how they're handling the situation. And that story will play out all over the country. But this with baseball or if the NBA decides to come back or any of them are going to be under such scrutiny that it's only going to take one slip up that nobody probably could foresee or could have done anything about. And that's going to ruin it for everything. And everybody's going to go back to this whole you can't do it, you can't do it, you can't do it. I I don't envy Rob Manfred at all because this is a tough spot to be in.
0: No, it most certainly is. And this is a polarizing topic, I think, for a number of different reasons. And as you and I have talked about before, it's not something that is easily parsed through by a lot of folks because people have very strong feelings about it. And what we've been dealing with as a nation and all, really all around the world, if you want to call it that, against the backdrop of that, professional sports doesn't really seem like a priority. We're not talking about essential workers here, but we are talking about the opportunity to get back to normal everyday life. And of course, sports and all businesses are a big part of that. And I think people certainly have, I would say very justified feelings on both sides of whatever fence, wherever you want to draw the line, if you will, as far as making that kind of thing happen. But for the purpose of just kind of sticking a pin in all of that and looking at it from the baseball perspective and what has to happen in order for baseball to come back, there has to be the health perspective that is really looked at and something ironclad has to be put in place to have the procedures that you need to make these players, I think, comfortable enough to take the risk that is inherent in coming back to play before there's any kind of vaccine or known and quantifiable treatments. And also against the backdrop of not knowing the larger long-term effects of this virus as well, because that's something that none of us know right now. So there is a very real health component to this, I guess is what I'm saying, Does it mean that you should just be afraid and never come out of your house again and never go back to everyday life? Well, of course not. But you do have to have these discussions if you are a business like Major League Baseball and all 30 of these clubs and all of the minor league clubs and all of the associated acts that come with that. You do have to discuss all this to have these plans in place in order to do this to the best of your ability, I think. And that's just putting apart the side of Financially, what do you have to do to keep your business going? Because that's going to be an entirely different kind of discussion. I think you've got to, Bill, at least for me, you've got to let people know that their health is a priority and that you're doing the necessary things in that regard in order to bring your players back to the safest environment that you can and to maintain that feeling as you go forward and you navigate some, again, an unprecedented period in the game's history.
2: Yeah, I think what they put out an 80 page basically report on how they were going to handle all the different scenarios that that may be coming down their way, including how to uh, quarantine a player if they test positive and how many tests they were going to do per week and what it would all mean. And even with all of that, you've still got players, and not even fringe players, but star players, kind of casting a, a sideways glance at Major League Baseball going, yeah, you know what, I'm not sure that even with all of that that you've talked about and all the things you're proposing, not real comfortable about going back and risking my health or somebody else's health. So they've still got a battle on their hands, but mm-hmm. I do give them credit for trying to be as thorough as possible. Uh, again, 80 pages is a lot to try to figure out exactly what you're going to do yeah. uh, in every situation. So they've still got a battle, I think, with some of the players, but they are getting closer. But, yeah, you're right. You At some point, you can't just – cower inside the house and wait for this to go away because there's there's one train of thought that says this will never go away. That's one side of things. There's other mm-hmm. people that say, well, we can't do it until we get a vaccine. And then other people say, no, you know what? We just have to protect those of us that are most vulnerable uh, to getting the disease and having it uh, you know, take a tragic turn. So there are so many different sides to this thing. It's going to be interesting to see if they can come to that final agreement to say, okay, we're going to protect these people. We understand your concerns. We need to go forward with this because I'm sure some of the guys are just itching to get back and play and say, look, I'm you know, 27-year-old, a healthy yeah. male. I'm not going to have to worry about it. Whereas other people, again, if any of these guys have diabetes or asthma or anything, they're way more susceptible to having it uh, turn really bad for them if they were to come down with it.
0: Yeah, and think about this as well, and this is something I've seen in a number of different places, so it's not just my original thought, but all these coaching staffs are typically much older than the players are, number one. They're going to be in contact with players every single day. That's the one thing. All the other support staff, whether that be medical, whether it be however you're providing the food for the team, all the other things that go with that, people that work in and around the stadium, even when patrons are not allowed in the stadium, just folks that work around the team, there are a lot of different aspects of this that you have to at least keep in mind as you're putting this together and coming up with a plan that would allow you to at least monitor the situation and take the appropriate action. And Rob Manfred, baseball's commissioner who has been in the news probably more than he wants to the last six to eight months in Major League Baseball, really maybe longer than that, but he's been a big part of the baseball news cycle for a while because of everything that's been going on in the sport and then a pandemic hits. And now he's under a different kind of scrutiny as baseball tries to get the ownership side and the player side to agree to resume a season or to have a season and what exactly that's going to look like. So from a health perspective, let's start there because we've got to start somewhere here. Manfred said on CNN last night that MLB's plan is to begin playing games in the empty stadium. So we knew that that was going to be a big possibility. First half of July is still what they're earmarking. Multiple tests for the virus conducted weekly. Antibody testing, Uh, in addition to that, temperature checks, all of that kind of stuff. They're going to monitor everyone on a daily basis. The lab in Utah that MLB normally uses for its drug testing in the minor leagues will handle the testing for the coronavirus, and there will be a 24-hour turnaround, according to Manfred. So that sounds like they've got at least a handle on very necessary boxes you're going to have to check for the players to feel confident that everything is being monitored in the way that it should be. If a player tests positive, Bill, this is kind of interesting that person would be removed from the rest of the team and quarantine, but the experts have advised MLB that that 14-day quarantine would not be necessary for the entire team, just for that player. So I thought that was kind of interesting because, as you and I talked about before we even came on here, depending on how you feel about this, you're probably able to get on the internet and find articles that will either make you more entrenched in that and will scare you even more than you maybe already are if you're on that extreme, or will embolden you even more if you're on the other side of this. So it's going to be really fascinating to see exactly what the reaction to this is when the players really have all of these details, as you were talking about, where we'll get into some of the player reaction that the social media world allows us to have immediately. But I thought for the first, I guess, uh, strike, if you want to call it that, for what they're looking to do to get this agreement going, they appear to have looked into the health ramifications of this quite a bit to put something in place that hopefully will build the groundwork and the foundation for the two sides to get together and for the players to feel comfortable from the health perspective.
2: Well, I don't think if from baseball's perspective, as far as just being able to play the games, they would have had to have uh, these experts tell yep. them that if somebody tests positive, that it's just the player that has to go, just the individual player that tested positive and not the whole team. Cause Let's say you get 20 games into the season and all of a sudden somebody from, I don't know, pick a team, the White Sox, tests positive. You can't take the entire 25, 30-man roster, whatever Mm -hmm. it is, and say, okay, well, you guys are down for two weeks. Your season's over at that point. So that's, to me, it's going to be interesting to see how much pushback they get um, if a player does test positive um, and the rest of the team looks at it and says, okay, wait a minute, I've been exposed to this And so have everybody else in this locker room and you want us to continue to play. I don't know if they're going to get pushback from guys at that point or not, but that's the only way they could maintain any semblance of a season is if you say, okay, the person who tested positive goes on the disabled list or quarantine list or whatever they're going to call it. Um, But that person's down for 14 days. Everybody else, good luck. We'll keep monitoring you, but hopefully it, it doesn't come to it. But what happens if it, if it runs rampant and, and again, these guys are much much healthier obviously much younger but we've already seen what happens in a close quarter area um, like nursing homes and how mm-hmm. quickly it spreads you know it's not gonna it's not that these guys are living together and everything else but you're in that clubhouse for six seven hours on the baseball field everything else around each other touching the same bats and all that kind of stuff it could spread pretty quickly through a major league baseball team and if one guy goes down with it, Then all of a sudden, what if you get five, six, seven guys from the same team? That's going to be a nightmare.
0: Yeah, and there's a lot of different aspects of this. And again, you can look at the mortality rate of this thing and do some very simple math and understand that this is not a disease that when you catch it, it's a guaranteed death to anybody that comes in contact with it. But that's not really the point. If you do have guys who get sick, because there are symptoms of this, and even if you don't end up in a worst-case scenario where you're really having to fight through this and whatnot, the spread of it, all the other things that go with it. And obviously that guy being unavailable to you, they're going to have to manage rosters in a different kind of way. They're going to have to manage everything in a different kind of way. But for Manfred and for to more to the point of this, just not to get totally off track here, but for Manfred, I think it's more about mitigating the risk as best they can, because this is not going to be risk-free. There's just no two ways about that. And taking care of these guys when, and if this kind of thing pops up, because I think it's more of a question of when than it will be if, but To circle back to something that you brought up, I mean, in the news, they've been reporting, well, Major League Baseball needs to do something to curb all the spitting that goes on in the game and (laughs) all the high fives and all the other contact that you have. Because keep in mind, you know, this is not you or I at 10 years old being dropped off at the Little League Park by our parents, already in full uniform with our bat bag over our shoulder, and we're going to go throw for 10 minutes and be warmed up and play a baseball game. This is not a rec league. I mean, this is something where, as you mentioned, Guys come into the clubhouse and spend an inordinate amount of time there before and some more time after, and you do it every day for a long period of time. So you aren't going to be able to separate people off. You might be able to do some things to mitigate some of the contact that goes on, but baseball is in a really interesting place when it comes to that, as will any sport be. I mean, football would be in the same deal, basketball. Guys that come into close contact, where there is a lot more contact in those sports, You're just going to have to figure it out from a risk management perspective. You can't just say, well, it'll go away. It'll run its course. We should just let it do its thing, and it'll be fine. That's just not an option for a business to take. If you want to do that personally, I mean, that is what it is. And I'm not here arguing, you know, one way or the other on that. But you just can't, from a business perspective, say, well, it'll run its course, and it'll be fine, and we'll just ignore it. You just can't do that. So there's so many different things that they're going to have to do health-wise to figure out the protocols that they need to get the players in a place where they do feel safe enough, let's call it that, to resume playing sports at any level and I think pretty much in any sport, if I'm not mistaken.
2: What you said uh, a while back in that is 100% correct, I think, and it's not going to be a matter of if, it's going to be a matter of when. Because if they can get through an entire baseball season, even if it's 82 games, whatever it is, and not one player ever tests positive that then every single school system government should be lining up to talk to Rob Manfred and say, yeah. what and how did you pull this off? Because I, I would be stunned if that's the case. And it won't be through any fault of the players necessarily or the trainers or whoever. You, you just don't know because a lot of times people that get it aren't showing symptoms. So you may not have any idea and you're testing and it's coming back negative or whatever. But you may pass it on to somebody who does show it. So I would be stunned, stunned if not a single baseball player uh, didn't come down with COVID-19 if they come back and play. That doesn't mean I don't want them to. That doesn't mean I don't think they should. I Mm -hmm. just think that it would be surprising if they're able to get through a whole season and not a single person does.
0: Right. And you have to have all these talks and set all these things in place beforehand. And if you're being overcautious, then be overcautious. That's my opinion. It's always better to have spent more time kind of preparing for something and it not happening than to be caught flat-footed and not have prepared and said, well, I just thought this would go away or I just didn't think it was a big deal. I mean, there's some things that you can do that with. But again, from a business perspective, I just don't feel like they can afford to run it that way. It's a slippery slope at the very best. And at worst, I think we can all kind of fill in the blanks on that. But again, I'm not a medical expert, and I'm not going to play one on TV. I'm not going to play one on this podcast either. But I am glad that they're looking at the things that I think that they're going to need to from a very rudimentary level of having procedures in place so that you are able to have some kind of plan in the event that things don't go in the best way possible because, again, that is why you plan that. So putting all of that aside, that's the component from the health side of things that I think a lot of players... If they're going to be the ones who are taking on the risk, if you want to call it that, of no longer social distancing and now gathering in, let's say, groups of 25, 30, 35, whatever the rosters are, they're the guys that are going to be doing that much more so than the guys who are paying them who are kind of on their own in regards to whatever social distancing they want to do or not, but they are the guys who write the check. So the financial component of this, and Bill, I'll just throw this in right off the top, against the backdrop of what's going on in the country with sky-high unemployment, I don't think that anybody's too excited to start tallying the points made by the billionaires versus the millionaires. There's really no way around that. There's a tone-deaf aspect of it that comes with it when you think about people who are very financially well-off and people in the country and around the world who are struggling to make ends meet at this time. So that's going to be a minefield for baseball and any sport to walk through when the financials of the entire sport become something that's focused on because how can it not be because the business of sports is what it is and fans are very plugged into that, it's going to be very difficult for them to get through this if things become contentious and if they start throwing slings and arrows back and forth, this could go very poorly. But closed-door negotiations and and all of those things aside because that's what they need to be having, this is something that needs to be I don't know if United front is possible, but as close to it as you can get so that they can avoid the very negative PR that could come with trying to get the financial aspect of the sport in line so that they can start this season because it's the elephant in the room. You're going to have to take care of it, and I think everybody's well aware of it. I think everybody's hyper aware of it, to be honest.
2: Yeah, if they can't get the agreement, whether it's a 50-50 split or however they want to do it, and they start bickering back and forth in the media, and people are just going to turn away from it at that point and say, you know what, don't even come back. We don't we don't even care at this point. Yeah. Um, because they're going to get tired of, again, guys arguing over, as you said, billionaires arguing with millionaires over a percentage here, percentage there, when most of us will never, ever uh, come close to seeing any of that kind of money, even at the mm-hmm. lower end uh, of the baseball pay scale. So they've got to be careful because, uh, I'll, I'll be honest with you, I get annoyed with them even without a pandemic going on when they start arguing over stuff. And I just sometimes want to throw up my hands and be like, just get it done. Now it's going to be, as you pointed out with people, you know, unemployed and struggling, they're going to have zero patience for any of this to play out, especially publicly. So I think they've got to come to some sort of agreement that makes sense for everybody. We already talked about the health aspect of it. When you combine that with the money aspect of it, you get what you get from a guy like Blake Snell who basically said, mm, I don't care how much money I'm making. It's not enough for me to go out and risk my health at this point if you're not going to pay me for my full-year salary. The other side, the owners are being are saying, look, you're being paid for 162 games. We ain't playing 162, so you're not going to get that. It's tough. You can see both sides of the argument. It's tough to figure out who to side with at that point. I think that the public is going to have a, a big struggle with
0: that. And I think it's a lose-lose component of this entire argument because most people aren't going to really want to pick sides in that case because they're going to be so disgusted that they're having to think about it to begin with that you're already losing the battle that you need to in the court of public opinion, and that's for both sides. But it is really interesting that typically because the players are the ones who are out there that you get to know that you see on a daily basis, and they're the ones that seem to be the recipient of most of the venom that will be thrown out there if for whatever reason – They decide that they are not ready to play. They don't agree to this proposal. There's a lot of different things that could go into this, including all the collectively bargained wars that these two sides have with one another. The pandemic being what it is, I don't think that ownership is going to have a problem making whatever point that it's trying to make against the players union in this time. And if you do think that for whatever reason everybody has put that aside and they're no longer thinking that way, the tribal way that they're going to think when it comes to owners and players, then you're just not paying attention because this thing has gone on for a while. It's going to continue to go on. It's been very contentious for a long period of time, and there are two very distinct sides here. So the players publicly have a lot to lose if they end up in a position where it looks like, well, we're just not getting enough money having already agreed back in March to take a 50% pay cut, according to reports and what I've read, and then ownership coming back and asking for another proposed round of pay cuts and then bringing in, I don't know if it's a Trojan horse or not, but when you bring in this whole revenue sharing idea, how do you even begin to ensure that the revenue reports are properly dispersed between the two sides how do you fact check all of that? I mean, this is a huge undertaking and it's something that owners would never agree to under normal circumstances. So it almost looks like, oh, well, we'll split it with you, but they're not going to do that going forward. So it's just one of those things where I just, you don't know whether you can take it at face value. And I think that the answer is that you probably can't in a lot of ways, because, again, there are so many different things in the financial wars between these two sides to establish the leverage that they need to in order to collectively bargain the agreements that they need to make the sport happen, that, again, to circle all the way back to the first thing we said, nobody wants to hear it right now because it's not the most important thing going on in life. It's not the most important thing going on in the country, in the world, whatever you want to call it. And that is where this becomes a complete lose-lose for both sides and the entire sport, if they're not able to come in and sit down and figure out a way to make this happen financially, putting aside the health component of this for a while, and I feel like I keep saying that phrase a lot because there are a lot of different blocks that they're going to have right. to figure out, but either way, like you're going to have to figure out both sides of this, but the money one is going to make people crazy, and it's going to make people very unhappy if there's a prolonged series of talks, and if this becomes the war in the press and all the other things that can come into it where, again, if folks, it's not going to resonate. It's just going to come across as completely tone deaf, in my opinion.
2: Well, yeah, especially if the players see this as an opportunity for the owners to kind of shove through a salary cap, which I guess tying it to revenue is the way yeah. that they would be able to do it. And the players don't want that. I mean, it's it's a little odd. You know, if you, if you follow the NBA and the NFL and the NHL, they all have some sort of cap. Um, major league baseball doesn't, and, and they've resisted that for a long time. The owners would love to get that in because it would give them a, a, uh, a nice solid footing to know exactly how much money it's going to cost them to compete, uh, in major league baseball right now. It's just, you, you're going to spend whatever you are willing to spend. Um, and the players don't want that salary cap kind of backdoored, um, you know, for them, even with the pandemic going on. So I get their side of it as far as standing up for it. But I also kind of understand the owner's side of it, too, where you look at it and say, hey, look, you know, there's not going to be fans. There's not going to be concessions. There's not going to be all this stuff. We're going to lose a ton of money. Uh, so let's all share in the misery together. I mean, I understand them trying to throw that at the players, I also get the players staying up for themselves and being like, yeah, no way, man. You signed me to this contract. This isn't about revenue sharing.
0: Yeah, and having already agreed to prorated salaries for the season right. to come back. And I don't know what all this looks like because I'm not privy to all of that information. I only read what the rest of you guys read when it comes to what they're going to have to agree to and what kind of proposals are out there. This information is all coming in, but I don't think we're getting a complete picture of it. And again, I really don't think that people want this right now. And that's the other thing that, you know, you have to think about if you're Major League Baseball. And when Rob Manfred was on CNN Thursday night, if I'm not mistaken, the figure that he was throwing around was $4 billion could be lost by the owners if there is no season in 2020. And I would think it would be more, personally, if you wipe the whole thing out. So if there is no agreement, I guess that's what they're looking at. Or at the least, perhaps they're looking at $4 billion worth of losses for this season if they go forward from the July point on, right. either way, billions of dollars are going to be lost. Yes, but welcome to where we are as a complete and total country and society right now with the economic effects of what's happening in terms of the shelter in place and shutting down businesses coast to coast. So I don't think the baseball is immune to that, quite obviously, and there's no pun intended in saying that. There are going to be financial complications from what has happened in the overall economy But, again, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on trying to make sense of the financial aspect of this and ethically, morally, trying to paint it in a way that people are going to appreciate it or like it because I just don't think that they're going to. And that, I think, to me, is the biggest takeaway that I've got from this is they need to move quickly to set aside their differences and come up with something that should motivate both sides to come to the table because everybody loses if there's no season, and I think that they're very well aware of that, but the way that they make this thing happen, if they're looking for ways to give people a sense of normalcy and come back and get the positive effects of that, they could do a lot of damage to that by not going about it the right way to start with, and I know that we're asking an awful lot of these two sides, and as I painted it earlier, billionaires versus millionaires, and there's an awful lot there, Bill, and I don't know if I'm missing something with it or not, but I think that the tone that they set with these talks and coming to their agreement is going to be a big part of how people receive the sport when, and if they get back to playing. And I think it is more of a win than an if at this point.
2: Yeah. And I think to break it down even smaller as we talk about, you know, a guy like Blake Snell, what do they do with him? If he decides that the money isn't worth the risk and there are probably other players out there who saw what he said and listened to it and had one of two responses either oh you're crazy we need to get back and it's worth the risk or yeah you know what I was thinking the same thing I just Mm -hmm. didn't have the guts to say it but what would they do in a situation like that if he just decides not to play I mean I guess they don't have any recourse it'd just be like retiring for a season or whatever I mean obviously the Rays would would still maintain his his rights but I think there's going to be a, a, a lot more than just Blake Snell to look at this and say, hey, you know what? You guys figure out all the money that you want to, but I'm not real comfortable going out there and doing this.
0: Well, not only that, but, I mean, typically when a player refuses to play, I mean, he doesn't have to retire. The team can put him on the restricted list and he doesn't get paid. So I think that would probably right. be the first reaction to that that an ownership group would have if a player does decide to do that. And for those that may not have caught it, the highlights of Blake Snell and what he said on his Twitch channel – was that he does not want to split revenue. He wants all of his – well, let me put it this way in in his words. I "I want all mine. You all got to understand because you're all going to be like, Blake, play for the love of the game. What's wrong with you? The money should not be a thing. Bro, I'm risking my life. You all got to understand. For me to go – for me to take a pay cut is not happening because the risk is through the roof. It's a shorter season, less pay. Now, I think that there's a few different things that come out of that that – We could spend a lot of time talking about, but it's like, what amount of money makes it comfortable for you to no longer care about the risk? You know what I'm saying? What amount of money makes it okay for you to make the decision that the risk is now worth the reward? And I can understand on a very rudimentary scale and level, if you keep cutting my pay, cutting my pay, cutting my pay, and then asking me to go do the thing that you're paying me for, people are going to feel some kind of way. But then, as we get back to the PR side of the whole thing and how the perception is going to very quickly become the reality is, you've got people all across the country doing what we call essential work that is not playing a major league sport. So however passionate you want to be about it, people aren't going to be buying it. People aren't going to be buying into it in the way that perhaps you intend and perhaps even in a way that is fair to you considering that situation because so many people are not in Blake Snell's situation. So it's not going to come across, regardless of how much he believes it and how totally within his rights he is to say it, that doesn't mean that people are going to like it and accept it as an absolute truth. And that's just the way that it is because of the divide that you're talking about between what is a fan base of a sport and the athletes who get paid a lot to play the sport, and then, of course, the owners who are raking in all of the money that people are paying to consume the sport.
2: Well, and in Snell's defense, if there is one, um, you know he's gotten accustomed to making the money that he makes, doing the job that he does, agreed upon between him and his agent and the and the baseball club. Well, now you know when he signed that contract, there was no risk of COVID nineteen. Now there is, so his money that he's expecting comes at a higher risk for him. So he's kind of weighing that out in his mind. And yeah, I mean, a lot of people would say, oh, I'd play, I, I'd pay, uh, I would go and play baseball COVID-19 or otherwise for league minimum because it's just such a great thing. Yeah, yeah, you would because of where you are in your life. Correct. But if you were one of them, you're not going to do that. and And so I get it from his aspect. It sounds tone deaf, some of his comments, but this is a 27-year-old guy on Twitch talking to fans, which by the way, on the side, I think it's great that Major League Baseball did mm-hmm. that MLB of the show tournament and more fans were tuning in and guys like Snell and others were interacting with them. I think it's awesome. So you got to consider the source. He's not standing there in the clubhouse giving a press conference, polished, talking to reporters. He's talking to guys that are probably about his age that are like, come on, Blake, you got to go and play. And he's, you know, as most of us would probably be with our, our buddies or whatever, be like, nah, man, I got to get mine. They got to pay me. Because this is crazy stuff out there. So I I get it from his aspect of it. He's not the only one that thinks this way. And that's what I worry about is what the pushback is going to be because Bryce Harper came out and basically said, you know what, Blake's not wrong in what he was saying. I get where he's He's coming from. Yeah. So if other players start to do this, you wonder how much of a roadblock that's going to be to getting the season started.
0: And this, again, is that's going to be the perception of the sport, because it's not the things that happen, I think, quietly and that happen with a sense of stability and normalcy. People aren't really going to notice that so much, but they're going to notice when somebody kind of steps out of that line and says something. That's what gets the attention these days. So, of course, and because it's a situation that none of us are really going to be in. I don't know that there's really any clear answer to this. And I can't say that he's not allowed to feel the way he feels because he certainly is. He's just in a different situation than the vast majority of the people that he's trying to make that point to. And a lot of times that's going to fall on deaf ears because people aren't conditioned to want to open themselves up to that line of thought because it does not affect them and it's not, in fact, the reality of the vast majority of people that are hearing that message. And it doesn't take much in the society we live in now for things to really take on a life of their own. So these comments most certainly did. Trevor Bauer, who has become one of the more interesting voices of baseball throughout everything that's happened from the Astros scandal to what's going on with things now, he has also um, had some comments recently that I thought were pretty interesting uh, in a YouTube video. Uh, Trevor Bauer said that the plan that MLB has for this revenue sharing is laughable because they're asking people to take more risk by going back sooner and then take less pay than they already agreed to, which was back in March. Mm -hmm. And they've already agreed to take a 50% pay cut. And now they're asking them to take another pay cut. And that the revenue split has never been done before in baseball, is not collectively bargained, would just be for this season, all of those things, that doesn't sit well either. And if he's going to trust his salary to rob Manfred marketing the game to make more money for the game, I'm out on that. Those are the words of Trevor Bauer. And I can't say I blame him because – look, I mean, none of that stuff has been handled particularly well from the Rob Manfred side of things when it comes to his overall approval rating, if you want to call it that. So he just doesn't have the leverage that he would have had normally if baseball wasn't coming out of a scandal that already made Rob Manfred look bad. So he does not have a lot of approval from people to begin with. And from the marketing standpoint, we've been arguing for a long time about was baseball doing it right? And people agree, well, probably not, but – How do you fix it? What do you do? All of those kinds of things. Are you competing with the other sports in the same way that they are able to have marketing success that you're not? And how do you get where they are? All of those questions. Those are all things that are in the backdrop of this as well. But when it comes down to it, and when it comes down to the financial aspects of making baseball happen again, a whole lot of people have a lot of different thoughts about this. And in particular, from an ownership side of things, they're trying to mitigate their losses. From the player side of things, they're trying to, I think, give what they can in the reality of if you have half a season, then you don't have the full ability to earn your full season salary. But it just seems like they're in a weird, weird place, an uncharted territory when this revenue sharing component came into uh, this whole discussion. And and I don't know what the answers to that are. And clearly they're trying to figure that whole thing out. But I don't think we're going to be going forward seeing 50-50 revenue sharing going on because it has never happened before. And with the record amount of money that's been raked in by owners in recent years, they haven't been looking to share right. that revenue 50 50 with the players before. So you've got to see there's a lot there that is going to take a little while for people to wrap their head around it.
2: Yeah. And then you've got, you know, retired players like Mark DeSheris saying, oh, you should be ready to go and, and agree to the pay reductions yeah, pins you know, on the dollar. Yeah. E- easy for him to say that he's not playing anymore. He made his millions of dollars. He's not yeah. taking any risk by it. So, I mean, I, if I'm, if I'm an active player and I see that, I'm like, come on, man, you got yours. Don't, you know, they're not coming after your money anymore. They're coming after ours. So uh, it, it's, it, they're in a tough spot because I think if, if guys like Bauer and guys like uh Snell and if Harper, and other guys start stepping up and saying things, it it could be, like I said before, it could be a roadblock to what they're trying to get done. And you just wonder if the owners would rather back off of this to get a season in, mm-hmm. because as you mentioned, they're probably, they probably lose more money by not having a season than they would if they played and just paid the salaries and didn't do the revenue sharing. I I, I think Quite honestly, I think they're just trying, as Jay Busby of Yahoo Sports wrote on it earlier, I think they're just trying to backdoor the salary cap in, mm-hmm. at least for this year, and and maybe try to keep it in going forward, just like some of the other rules. that I think they're going to come down the pike and they're going to say, oh, this is just for 2020, and then it won't ever go away.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of different things that could happen, and we've already gone for quite a while on this, so I don't know how much more we want to delve into rules changes, but I know universal DH was one of the things that's in this agreement that a lot of people would welcome that with open arms. There's still some people that they don't want to see that because that's not traditional baseball. I think that clearly there's a case to be made for both sides, but at this point in the evolution of the game, I don't have a problem with a universal DH, and one of the big reasons why is pitchers don't spend the same amount of time polishing their offensive skills that they may have in a bygone era. They're certainly not doing that now, and I really don't think that those non-competitive at-bats add a flavor to the game that is particularly good. I don't know what your thoughts are on Universal DH on a lighter note than all of the other things we've been talking about, but I don't really have a problem with it. Will it happen long-term? I don't think the players have an overall problem with it, save a few good-hitting pitchers that would like to continue to be allowed to do that. And maybe you still let those pitchers hit if you don't want to use the DH. I don't guess that you have to, do you?
2: No, you can have your pitcher, and it happens on a rare occasion in the American League now, the DH, where you pull the DH for whatever reason, and the pitcher ends up having to fill that spot right. in the batting order. So, I mean, it could happen. I'm I'm fine with the DH. It, it doesn't bother me. I'd be fine, quite frankly, if the American League dropped it and they went the pitchers hitting. I would just like for both leagues to have the same rules. It was nice and kind of interesting when they didn't have interleague play, when you got to the playoffs right. and, you, and you got to see, okay, which team has the advantage when they're in the other team's ballpark. But now it's just a matter of, oh, you're the home team and you're in the American League. Okay, you, got, you guys get to use your DH. So I just want the rule to be universal either way. And I guess to get more eyes on the game, you would want more offense. So that means having the universal DH. I think you're also going to see the players are going to try to, as best they can, um, maybe even get an extra roster spot or two when this is all said and done, mm-hmm. and maybe that's part of the trade-off. I, it wouldn't shock me if they were able to, to to get that put through where you get 26, maybe 27-man rosters.
0: Yeah, and to me, I mean, this is all CBA stuff to be figured out in the coming months and year or whatever it is that their deadline is at this point that they have to figure that thing out. But either way, there are going to be some things, I think, that could go from this and be carried forward. And from the rules perspective, Universal DA seems like a no-brainer in that regard. But from some of the other things, just to bring it back and put a bow on the financial aspects of all the stuff that they're trying to agree upon, I think that the realization for both sides is that they are still in a bargaining posture and they don't want to give up that leverage because the effects of that going forward... There could be ramifications on the next CBA, and I don't think anybody's ready to put down their sword, so to speak, and just come to complete agreement based purely upon 2020. I think people are still forward-thinking in that regard and very much serving their own interests as it comes down to it because that is just the nature of the beast. So if it's the owners against the Players Association, they're going to be looking for whatever win they can get, and the players have to be very well aware of that, and they have to be looking to have their own countermeasures in place to protect themselves. These are two sides that for a very long period of time have not always seen eye to eye, and I don't think that that's going to stop or be put on pause just simply to make baseball happen in the year 2020. That's one small aspect of what they're going to try to accomplish, but they're clearly going to try to set themselves up moving forward in the best position that they can be in to, again, serve the interests of those particular parties.
2: Yeah, look, Major League Baseball Players Association may be the best union of the four major sports. They get guaranteed contracts. They have no salary cap. Why would, they, why would they bargain against those interests that they already have?
0: Yeah, this is a great question, and I don't know that they would, and I don't think that they would like to do anything that endangers the things that they've worked so hard to attain over a long period of time. And again, as I I said, wrapping this whole thing up, the billionaires versus millionaires argument is exhausting. I'll put it that way. I mean, I see a, a lot of it online. I don't think that any of us are particularly winning by going to bat to the nth degree for either side because it's so far beyond our everyday life that I just don't see the reason to get angry about it. But there is, right now, not, I think, an appetite for the normal things that would be going on because we're not in a normal time. And while the threat of work stoppage and that kind of thing is going to get people fired up, not that that's been happening right now, but they're kind of low-key dealing with that if they can't figure out how to make the sport go on, then work has stopped, even if the two sides didn't do that to one another. They're still, their self-interests are going to be a big part of how they come together. They're not going to just go away. It's not going to just all be tabled for the foreseeable future until they get back to a place where then they feel comfortable to resume normal talks. They're trying to figure out this whole thing out and it's no great timing to this and there's no great timing to it for all of us personally. And there's no great timing from the business aspects of what major league baseball finds itself in at this particular time. So they're going to have to figure that whole thing out. Hopefully they come to something that uh, works out and gets baseball back and we can start keeping our focus on the field and, not have to worry about going back to business school to understand exactly what in the world's going on every time somebody has a discussion about Major League Baseball.
2: Yeah, and, and again, there are more important things that we're dealing with and all that, but it is definitely the, the, the labor strife is, is not an unknown quantity to Major League Baseball. I think they've probably had more of it than any of the other major sports. So hopefully uh, cooler heads will prevail once we get through all of this other stuff and they'll be able to work it out down the road. But for right now, they just got to figure out a way that they can get 30 teams back on the field playing as safe as possible and make it work for all parties involved.
0: Well, We'll see exactly what that looks like in the coming days. I would imagine it can't be too much longer, just based on the timeline they'd need to start a season in July we should hear something sooner than later regarding what baseball comes to for an agreement to get the 2020 season underway. Bill, I appreciate all your time as always. I know that was a lot of stuff to chew on. And, you know, <laughs> it's, it's a lot of just trying to make sense of the headlines, make sense of the news, but also to balance that, I guess, with what each and every one of us are going to feel based on the circumstances of life right now. So a very... Interesting set of discussions and topics and things, and I think we did the best we could to get through all of that, and hopefully those listening along and riding along with us enjoyed at least having the discussion. It's not to say I'm right, you're right, and anybody else is wrong. It's just trying to make sense of all of this, I think, is one battle that we're all trying to win.
2: Yeah, absolutely, and it's interesting on a day uh, after that we found out that the longtime player and GM, Bob Watson, passing away last night interesting that a lot of this conversation because he was a guy that was involved in you know players association while he was in in major league baseball so he's a guy that i think a lot of these players owe a little bit of debt to because he did such a great job in that aspect of it as well um and i know he played at the end of his career in atlanta so there are probably mm-hmm. a lot of your braves fans that have fond memories of bob watson playing for them but passed away last night at the age of 74.
0: Yeah, I would imagine there are a lot of Braves fans that do remember Bob, and he was, I believe, a member of the 1982 Braves that won the National League West, and there weren't a whole lot of division-winning teams going on for the Braves in their first 25 years in Atlanta, so that's certainly, I think, a a fond memory that season and the loss of Bob Watson and everything else that's going on and the different things you can take, I guess, from just about any situation right now and uh, pull from. There's a lot of uh, common threads and things that are running through all of it, so Hopefully they'll figure out the things they need to figure out, and we'll be talking about baseball on the field, and uh, we'll be doing that right here on this podcast because I would very much like to talk about baseball games again because this stuff has been, I think, very heavy for a long period of time, and the relief that comes with that sense of normalcy and getting back to it, I think everybody can agree that's something we all want.
2: Absolutely. I want to start arguing about bullpen setups rather than than (laughs) revenue-sharing
0: I look forward to it. Bill, thanks again for your time, and look forward to chatting with you again next week. Absolutely. Have a great weekend, everybody. That'll wrap us up for this week's show. Make sure you subscribe to From the Diamond over on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Leave those ratings and reviews, and be sure to share it with a friend as well. You can find the show on social media, on Twitter, at FromTheDiamond underscore. I am at Grant McCauley, and Bill is at Bill Rowland. On Instagram, at FromTheDiamonds, where you can find the show, and I am on Instagram as well, at Grant McCauley. And, of course, every episode of the show and so much more is available for you at FromTheDiamond.com. My thanks again to Carlos Colazzo of Baseball America and, of course, to Bill Rowland for jumping on the show to talk about all the things happening across Major League Baseball this week. And my thanks again to you for making From the Diamond part of your podcast regimen and for making time during the week to chat about baseball with us. That will wrap us up for this episode of the show. And until next time, this has been From the Diamond. I'm Grant McCauley, and we will catch you then. So long, everyone.